How's school? Uh, yeah, great. Exciting. Learning some things, that's hope I'm hopeful. Um those of you who don't know me, I'm Sid, campus minister with this thing called RUF, Reform University Fellowship, uh, at New Mexico State. We're a Christian campus ministry that's here to serve the campus um, and to serve Jesus. Let me tell you a little bit about RUF. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the girl who wears boots in the summer, and the guy who wears flip-flops all winter, for the student is, who is so New Mexican that they already can't sleep in anticipation of waking up at 5 a.m. and going to see hot air balloons. And, and for the student that is so out of state that they don't really understand the whole weird obsession with hot air balloons, especially on license plates. So here we are, all together. Um, and RF exists for those who have a problem with God and those who believe that their problems are being fixed by God. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are, thanks for coming. Um, we're glad you're here. We hope to get to know you, and we hope that you get to know us. And by us, I mean uh, maybe the person next to you, maybe uh, the people leading worship, small group leaders, Jen, me, um, whomever. So I'm already going to plug it. Ready? International Lights. What a wonderful opportunity to come and get to know some RUF folks if you're not in RUF. And if you are in RUF, I mean, you already know. Do I even need to plug it? I mean, we're already there. Mentally, we're eating hummus and drinking expensive coffee. Okay. So, let me tell you, I'm going to follow up a little bit with announcements. Um, there, there's a sign-up for camping retreat out in the table outside. And... Um, and if you also want to know more about RUF, you can, you can write some sort of thing in on the sign-up, like, hey, I'm just interested in RUF, and just write your name and your, and your email. It's a good way to get in touch. But I actually would recommend this week, if you're not going to do, since we don't have a sign-up, why don't you do join just the NMSU RUF Facebook group? Look, we're, we're in a social media century. I mean, I don't know if you've hit that tidal wave yet. If you're surfing on that amazing um, interrelational technological space-age high... Um, if you're doing that, great. And why don't you join the Facebook group? And that will give you a lot of info, especially about cool things like the trip. Finally, if you're a new student, like you're new to New Mexico, stay as a freshman, you're transferred in, sophomore, junior, senior, victory laps, etc. Um, if you're new to RUF, we're throwing you at dinner. Okay? Does it get much better than that? We have the fatted calf in the yard, and we're about to slaughter it. Um, for your sake. <laughs> There will be fun, there will be fellowship, there will be food for free. And, you know, get to know some folks in our life. It's a wonderful opportunity um, to get to know some of the new people and get to know some of the old people. Um, Jen's house is wonderful. It's very close. Myrtle is very close. Um, so I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. And finally, this bulletin has a lot of stuff on it. Pick a few things that, if to take to the next level. To get to know RUF and maybe get more involved in RUF, a good way to do that is to go to a Bible study or to a RUF lunch. Um, I'm going to plug Bible studies and just say, look, there's a, Bible studies are doing two things simultaneously. One, you're building community. Like, you're getting to know folks in your Bible study on a smaller scale. Um, and then the second thing is that you're getting to understand the promises and the challenges of Jesus Christ more and more for your own as you wrestle with Scripture. Okay. 
So there we are. So please join with those two things. Look, I'm going to toss this bulletin. It's already complicated enough up here. Um, I'm going to make do. Uh, okay, so excuse the awkwardness. This is RUF. And here we go. Uh, this semester, um, we've been studying in this setting uh, the story behind Elijah and Jonah. We've been looking at these two particular people. We're looking through right now the book of Jonah. In a few weeks, we'll look through 1 Kings uh, and to look at the story of Elijah there. I'm calling our study this semester Tracing the Heart of God, the story behind the stories of Elijah and Jonah. And we're looking at these two people uh, for a number of reasons, but two really good ones. There's a lot of us in them. Okay? And then Jonah and Elijah's stories are beautifully about God and his story. And so that's really the two reasons that primarily that we're looking at those two stories. And I think those of you who've been around have seen that and hopefully you'll see that this week. Um, speaking of this week, let's just keep going. We're continuing our discussion of Jonah, as told in the book of Jonah. And before we dive into our study, um, right now we're in verse 17 of chapter 1, I want to kind of get you caught up on what's been going on in Jonah's life uh, since the beginning. And I'm going to give you a paraphrase of the book of Jonah. Verses 1 through 16. Just know this ahead of time. This is nowhere near word for word. Okay, so prepare yourself. Here we go. God calls Jonah to go to the Ninevites, that is the Assyrians, and tell them to stop skinning people alive and start uh, loving God and being on his team. But Jonah instead says, hey, that's a great idea, God, and he takes off and goes the other direction as far as possible to the ancient, to the ancient limits of the known world then. And that's Tarshish in Spain, the Strait of Gibraltar. Um, actually, what's really interesting about this, and I haven't brought this out, but I'm going to do it. Ready? Some Hebrew. Okay? In the Hebrew, in the first chapter, every time it describes Jonah fleeing, it says the word go down. Literally, Jonah is going down. He's going down. He's going down physically, and he's going down spiritually. He goes down to Joppa, then he goes down to the, to the, to the ship in Joppa, then he goes even inside the ship, into the interior of the ship, as he's on the stormy sea. And then, as if that weren't low enough, he jumps into the sea itself and goes down to the bottom of the sea. So Jonah is going down. That's the summary of chapter 1. It's not pretty. There's lots of stormy water, um, lots of blood, sweat, and tears, and here we go. And the question is, there's two questions that we're faced with. As Jonah goes down all the way to the bottom of the sea, even to the gates of death himself, the question is, how far will Jonah go? And the second question is, how far will God pursue Jonah? I want you to think about those two questions as we turn in our Bibles or our blue sheets to the passage that we're looking at. Jonah chapter 1, verses 17, and then Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. And as you're turning there and sort of saying, why is he straddling two chapters? This is awkward. Um, I want to say this, that in the Hebrew, again, I'm referring to this, um, the Hebrew text actually, chapter 1, verse 17, is actually chapter 2, verse 1 in the Hebrew. So this is actually a chunk of story that's meant to be taken together. It's meant to go from chapter two, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, all the way through chapter 10. Jonah being swallowed by the fish, and then the prayer, and then being spit out again. That's the chunk of story as the original author meant to tell it. I, don't, I mean, don't ask me why the person separated it by chapters. It was some guy in the Middle Ages. Um, there's a joke that he was on a horse, and every time the horse bucked him, he made a period or changed the chapter. Um, that's not true, but it might as well be. Okay. So would you stand for the reading of scripture? 
Uh, we're looking in English at chapter 1, verse 17, and through chapter 2, verse 10. It's in your bulletin on your right-hand side, middle right-hand side. Okay. Bible, Jonah, right after Obadiah, between Obadiah and Micah. Okay. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 through 2.10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, it's easier for the heavens and the earth to pass away than for one letter, one letter of the word of God to become void. Would you pray with me? Father, um, I just pray that your word would go forth with strength and power, uh, that it would prick our hearts through your spirit, that we would be um, moved, moved to be different than who we are entering this room even, moved to change, but Lord, Move to remember who we truly are and what we truly want. I pray, Father, that um, that we would feel and know your, your gospel message, the truth, the good news, even buried in an Old Testament minor prophet. I pray, Father, that Jesus would become more believable and more beautiful to all of us here, no matter where we are. And I pray, Father, that um, you would use this time, that we wouldn't just be wasting our time and pretending to do something holy, but that you would make it holy. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks. Alright. Can we start with a children's story? Why not, right? I'd like to take you back to 1883. 1883, special year. And a man named Carlo Collodi. Carlo Collodi. And I really want to tell you a story about, it's a compelling story, it's a powerful story that's shaped our understanding of a lot of different things. So if you would mentally sit on the floor and move your legs crisscross applesauce, right about now it's Aria story time. Aria story time, here we go, ready? Ready people? That time right afterwards, no cookie. Okay, so here we go. Once upon a time, there was a father who made someone in his image. This father was named Geppetto, and the someone was named Pinocchio. And in Carlo Collodi's story, there was a problem. Pinocchio was a wooden puppet. He couldn't become a wooden. He couldn't become a real boy. He couldn't really live. And so he went through the motions of boyhood, school, and friends and pranks. But he really didn't have any moments of real life. Even going through these motions, school and fun felt wax-covered and unreal. So a magical figure, 
a fairy godmother, I think she's blue, um, comes and gives Pinocchio a law, a way, a way to earn his realness, his salvation. She says this, Pinocchio, you can become a real boy if and only if you learn how to be brave, honest, and generous. Okay? You can become a real boy if you become brave, honest, and generous. And a measure of his success or failure, according to the fairy, godmother, whatever she is, uh, will be, in, in these little areas, these virtues, will be his wooden nose. The more he lies, the more dishonest, the more cowardly, the more stingy Pinocchio is, the more his nose will grow. So he has a measuring stick on his face, and it measures him uh, how he's doing. Anyway, look, this is a long story, so I'm going to cut it short. Sorry, sorry. Um, but I hope it'll be a little bit more relevant. Pinocchio obviously doesn't do a great job. He, tells the, he, he fails to tell the truth a bunch of times. He lies. His nose grows longer and longer. And he gets into a bunch of trouble. And he gets into such a big trouble that he actually takes off and goes to this place called Pleasure Island. Okay. Um, and, which I think is, by the way, just can I do a side here? Uh, downtown Disney has a place called Pleasure Island. I don't know if you know, it's been in Orlando for a couple of years. It's now like a, it's not, not like a hot night spot. Anyway, um, Pleasure Island wasn't like that for Pinocchio, okay? <laughs> wasn't that cool? People weren't wearing tube tops. Um, anyway, so Geppetto's worried about Pinocchio, you know, his father, and he goes on a raft and he chases after Pinocchio. Um, and you know, it's, it's a pretty big deal. And, but Geppetto's old, and it's a stormy sea, and all of a sudden his raft starts to fall apart. And at that moment, a giant whale, or great fish, swallows Geppetto, and he ends up in the, the whale's stomach. But you know, Pinocchio doesn't know this. He's on Pleasure Island, right? And there he is, having the time of his life, doing things that he wished he always did, but feeling empty. And then, you know, Pleasure Island actually has this weird side effect where you turn into a donkey. I don't know if you guys knew that, but... It does. Um, not the night spot, but Pinocchio's story. There we go. Anyway, so he has to get out of there because he realizes they're going to like sell him to the circus. And so he runs off into the sea. And he's a wooden puppet, so he floats pretty well. And so he takes off and swims, okay? And, you know, he's doing pretty well, but it's a stormy sea. And all of a sudden, he comes upon a whale. And lo and behold, the whale swallows him. And then he lights a match or whatever. And he goes, is anyone there? And Geppetto goes, hey, Pinocchio, here I am. And then they kind of this wonderful reading in the, in the stomach of a whale. Okay. Uh, and here's, here's something to think about. The creator and the creature have the same predicament. Okay. Geppetto and Pinocchio, the father and the would-be son, are stuck in a whale together. And it's a sad moment. There's no escape. But what do they do? Instead of crying out for help, Pinocchio digs deep, finds some courage, makes a plan, and takes some like half-digested driftwood makes a fire, and makes the, 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 the whale get ticklish and sneeze and spit them out. Okay, then Geppetto's like, I can't swim. Pinocchio's like, you're in luck, I'm made of wood. And then so <laughs> Geppetto uses Pinocchio as a kickboard and goes back to the shore, okay? It's a beautiful scene. Pinocchio being so generous as a flotation device. Okay, once they're back on shore, Pinocchio realizes there's this moment where he's told by, again, the fairy lawgiver that, wow, you know what, Pinocchio, you've proven that you're brave, generous, and honest now, so you can become a real boy. And magically, Pinocchio is no longer a puppet, but a boy. He becomes real life again, and everything's no longer wax-coated, but beautiful and real. Okay. 
So clearly, this story by Carlo Collodi has some biblical parallels, okay? Geppetto, like God with Adam, creates Pinocchio in his own image. Second, Pinocchio's story is a lot like Jonah's story in that they're swallowed by a whale, okay, and they're spit out of the whale again, and it's sad, okay? But I want you to notice this is where the similarities end in this, these two stories. They share the same difficult experiences, but they get out of their experiences very differently, okay? And I think this is the difference between fiction and reality, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point this out over and over again. Jonah is the son of God, because God gives him life, and Jonah believes that. Not because Jonah is particularly brave or honest or generous. Okay? Jonah doesn't get out of the whale by some brave action. Unlike Pinocchio, he doesn't look deep down inside of himself and think of a clever plan. Instead, Jonah surrenders, and he prays to God, and God rescues him. And look, if you hear nothing else tonight, just hear this, okay? Hear this. The solution to all the problems in, in Collodi's Pinocchio and every other story in the world, aside from the Bible, is very, very different than the solution offered by the Bible. Okay? Trust me, I've read a lot of them, and so have you. Collodi tells us, be good and you'll get what you want. That's what Collodi in every other story says, be good and you'll get what you want. God tells us, want God and you'll be good and get what's good. So again, every story, Collodi, be good and get what you want. Here's what the Gospel says. Here's what the Bible says. It says, want God, and therefore be good and get what's good. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? Let me put it this way. And I'm just going to quote scripture here. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That is the fundamental theme of the entire scripture, let alone this chapter of Jonah. That is, we are rescued by God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He has to do the rescuing. Every other story, including Collodius Pinocchio, tells us salvation belongs to you and to me. It's, about, it's all about salvation in being a little bit braver, a little more generous, a little more honest. That is, we rescue ourselves. Thank you very much. That's the difference between the two stories, okay? And you see, every sensible person in the history of the world agrees, we haven't arrived yet, there's more life to be had. Okay? We haven't arrived yet, there's more life to be had. That's why in our honest moments we feel wooden. We feel wooden. Why can't we feel the full freedom of a Friday afternoon as it's really meant to be? Why is falling in love always a little bit bitter and sweet and not just sweet? Why is it that my, when I truly love my children, my heart aches? It aches in longing and not in satisfaction. We know there's more to life when we feel around, pulled around like a pulpit, a puppet, excuse me. Puppet. I mean, is that like some sort of like Freudian, I need a pulpit? Or, okay, we're just, let's embrace that insecurity and we'll move on. Okay, so here we are. Okay, um, look. There's more to life than feeling like a puppet. And I think a lot of us are tugged by parental academic expectations. A lot of us are jerked around by friends' social expectations. And then finally, we're caught between two threads of irresponsibility and responsibility. 
But then comes the big question, how do we come really real? That is, how do we really live? How do we become really real and how do we really live? And Jonah chapter 2 suggests that we become real. We live fully by asking and then resting in God's salvation. That is his rescue of us. That is his salvation, the salvation that belongs to him. In fact, Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 through Jonah chapter 2 verse 10 says it this way. Like Jonah, we're surrounded by God's rescue before and behind us. Therefore, let's lean into God's presence and pray and pray with an honesty and a gratitude. Okay? I'll put it another way. Grace surrounds you. Grace surrounds you. Move towards God in prayer. Okay? That's the whole theme of what we're going to talk about. Grace surrounds you. Move towards God in prayer. Okay? This passage pictures for us, literally pictures for us, how God rescues us. That rescue surrounds us. Look at verse 17, and then look at verse 10. God is rescuing Jonah from death, and then he's rescuing him from the fish. And then in the middle of those two, like a word picture, you see Jonah's prayer, right? And Jonah's prayer is a response to rescue with gratitude. So we're surrounded by God's rescue, and in the midst of that, we're called to thankfully and honestly pray. Okay. So, if you'll remember... We're moving into the passage here at verse 17. Jonah runs away from God's call to Nineveh, and God sends a storm after him. And in the face of, his, of that storm, God confesses, or sorry, Jonah confesses his sin to those around him and to himself. And then in an act of repentance, he tells the sailors to throw him off the ship. Right? Does anyone remember that? And here's my question. What was Jonah thinking as he floated above the edge of the ship and into the water? What was he thinking as he hit the swirling, churning water? My guess is that he thought he would die. I think it's sensible. <laughs> right? It's stormy. He's in the middle of the Mediterranean. Um, he's not much of a swimmer. Even as the storm calmed, I think Jonah's fears didn't. They just increased. Because he was still far from shore, and he was sinking like a stone. But look at verse 17 with me. And then the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And I'm just going to continue what I've been talking about. Jonah's running away from God is a picture of sin. Right? And then, excuse me, right? And then Jonah's honesty about who God is and who he is is a picture of confession. Okay? And then Jonah's... Um, asking to be thrown overboard is a picture of repentance. So, surely God appointing a fish to swallow Jonah in the deep is a picture of God's grace. It's a picture of God's grace. After all, without the fish in its digestive system, Jonah would be dead in the water, literally. On a more personal level, and I said this again, the Christian life lived well feels like dying. As I said last week, repentance feels like being thrown overboard into the waves, into the stormy sea. You think, if people really get to know who I am, if, they, if I'm really honest with people and tell them what I suck at, if I tell them that, and how I've failed them, then people will just run away. I think about this as a pastor. I think if I admit my wrongs, like failing people in my big sins, not my like 
pious, respectable sins. If I say that to people, people won't respect me anymore. I mean, after all, who wants to, who wants to like follow a self-admittedly bad leader? Okay. But then again, what other choice do we have in the face of all the sin filling us up? What other choice do we have but to be honest? Pretending we're fine, that everything's just fine, smells rotten and endangers the life of those around us. Okay? Think about Jonah pretending that he's not running away from God in the storm that nearly kills the whole boat of people with him. But hear this biblical truth. Okay, so if repentance feels like dying and just throwing yourself overboard, here's the biblical truth. It's beautiful. God swallows repenters in his love. He swallows us in his love. God will appoint a way to catch you in your social swan dive every single time. Every single time. Listen, I know that you know that life's about trust. I know you're tired of doing trust falls into the arms of people who don't catch you. How tired am I, am I of my back hitting mulch and me lifting the blindfold and seeing everyone's backside? How tired am I of that effect of life? But this verse in the entire Bible tells us that God catches us. He catches those who turn from sin and turn towards Him. And my life has taught me that sweet truth as well. In accordance with Scripture. And this last thought brings me to an objection. Okay? Some of you are like crossing your arms right now, having an internal dialogue with yourself, silently thinking, look, Sid, I go to New Mexico State. This is a university of hard science. Right? There are labs... There are, I mean, I'm a biology major, I'm a chemistry major, I'm pre-med, don't talk to me. But, do you expect me to believe this large fish came along in the Mediterranean, come on, that's not a very big sea, and swallowed this guy up, and then this guy, like, sat in his belly for three days, like, covered in gastric juices, and then, all of a sudden, he popped out, fine, on the, on the shore, and, like, as if he were just cleaner. I mean, Sid, please, I might as well have continued sitting Indian-style listening to the Pinocchio story. I mean, what's the difference? I understand this objection in passages like this in the Bible, like Jonah 1.17 and Jonah 2.10, a lot of people struggle with, and a lot of, it makes a lot of people question whether the Bible is non-fiction history or whether it's actually just fictional literature. Okay? And I can tell you that the word fish in Hebrew, the word dog, doesn't actually specify whether it's a whale or a fish. Okay? There's no sort of mammal um, fish distinction in terms of taxonomy of biology. Okay? That's as far as I can get with biology. We'll just end it there. I use taxonomy because I didn't know what I was talking about. Okay. So, I mean, but anyway, there's no sort of differentiation of species in the word dog. Okay? That's the Hebrew word for fish. So it might be a fish, it might be a whale that swallowed Jonah. And I could rattle off a bunch of historical examples of sailors that have been swallowed by fish or whales, and then they've kind of survived, they've come out, and they've been fine. I mean, a little worse for wear, granted, but they've actually survived. And I could give you a bunch of those answers. But really, at the end of the day, I think we actually need to go a little bit deeper. A little bit deeper, okay? We need to actually think about why we have this 21st century objection. What is it about this great fish episode that we find so hard to believe? My guess is because it's unscientific. It strikes us as unscientific. Here's my question. Since when is history scientific? 
What does it have to be scientific? Isn't history filled with unusual events that don't repeat themselves, that actually happen, and we think that'll never happen again, even in this day and age, and certainly not in a petri dish in a lab? Isn't that how history works? Awesome. Okay. <laughs> Science is wonderful, honestly. It does what it's supposed to do. It does a great amount. But since when do historical events have to be proven by science? Since when? Since when does the, the testing and retesting of data to get the same conclusion actually apply to science? Or to history in that case? Look, I can't prove scientifically that the whale swallowed Jonah. Okay? You can't either. But you also can't prove scientifically that the Holocaust happened. And do you want to be in the same boat as the president of Iran on that issue? I don't think so. Okay. Look, there are plenty of things that we can't repeat in petri dishes that actually happen. And this is why history doesn't depend on the process of experimentation in the scientific method, but rather it depends on reliable testimony. History relies on primary sources that are reliable. For instance, the book of Jonah. <laughs> it's a primary source written by the author. Okay? It doesn't get much more reliable in the name of history for that. But really, the point of this miracle isn't to sort of debate about science and non-science and, and the jurisdictions of science and history. It's to point to something, to Jesus. That's the point of all miracles. At least that's what Jesus tells us in the reading that we heard from Matthew. Right? He tells us that Jonah's three days and three nights in the fish's belly, the part that we have the most trouble with, is a preview of Jesus' three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. That is the tomb. Does everyone see that? And if we have trouble believing the great fish episode where Jonah doesn't even die, how are we going to believe? How are we going to believe that some guy died for three days and then rose again from the dead? And if Jesus actually historically didn't die in the crucifixion, come back to life in the resurrection, we're without hope of rescue. Did you realize that? We're hopeless if he didn't die in the crucifixion and rise in the resurrection. If God doesn't know what it's like to die and also how to rise again, how can I be sure that my sins are forgiven? How can I be sure that God will catch me in the moments of weakness that I have in my prayer life? How could I know that repenting to others isn't just social suicide if I don't know that there's a life hereafter that God has promised, that God has shut forth through Jesus Christ? And what's beautiful about this is that doesn't cause doubts because what we start to see is that Jonah gives us assurance. This passage gives us assurance about the death and the resurrection of Christ. Jonah's prayer of death, distress, and death deliverance in verse 9 gives us assurance. Verses 1 through 9. From verse 2 to verse, the second part of verse, or excuse me, the first part of verse 6, we read that Jonah is talking about his near-death experience. He sank to the bottom of the sea, and here's how he describes it. You can read for yourself. He describes himself as dead in Sheol, the afterlife, surrounded by waves near the seafloor, covered with billows, wrapped like sushi and seaweed. That's actually the language. I didn't say sushi, okay, but that's fine. And he feels like he's traveling downward, ever downward, into a land whose bars are closed forever. That is a beautiful poetic way of saying death. Okay? But then in the midst of his near death, there's a kind of near resurrection. God rescues Jonah 
Does everyone see this? Verses 6 through 9 describe Jonah praying and God saving him from death by drowning. It describes Jonah praying and God saving him from being cast out for his sins by God mercifully drawing near. By the end of this prayer, Jonah knows salvation belongs to the Lord, not just physically, but also spiritually. And here, let me quote Sinclair Ferguson on this. He's a scholar, theologian, etc. The deeper work of God took place not in the belly of the fish, but in the heart of the prophet Jonah, not in the realm of nature, but in the realm of grace. The book of Jonah records a miracle characterized by spiritual restoration, not just physical preservation. Okay, that's deep and heavy, but what he's basically saying is this, that it's awesome that God saved him with a fish, but it's even more awesome that God chases after sinners. That's what he's saying. And let's not forget where Jonah prays this incredible prayer of gratitude. He's in the belly of a fish. Okay, he's in the belly of a fish. And many, many readers of this, of this prayer, of this, of this chapter of Jonah, think this should be a lament of sadness and not a prayer of gratitude, not a prayer of thankfulness. I mean, after all, look, Jonah is stuck in the, intest- the small intestines of a big fish and trying to make a, home, a house out into a home there. What is the deal? Look, the belly of the fish is confining, it's limiting, and perhaps a bit dark, wet, and nasty smelling. Right? I'd imagine. It might feel like a prison cell to some, but for Jonah, it's a healing hospital. It's a healing hospital. God had to give him three days and three nights to come to the end of himself and come to the beginning of God. He had three days and three nights to come to the end of himself and the beginning of God. And I want you I want to think about this. I doubt the first day was filled with prayer or praise. Okay? The second maybe probably wasn't. But by the third, Jonah in his confinement and his limits, coming to the end of his self, starts to pray out of gratitude and thanksgiving for realizing what he's been saved to. I mean, haven't you had those moments in your life where you've had incredible emotional pain that has led to spiritual deliverance? I mean, maybe you're in that moment now and you're not, you're not seeing the light that's coming. Maybe you feel like the darkness is happening. I mean, societally, we're obsessed with comfort. We forget how good pain can be. Let me just give you an example. Philosophically, the problem of evil has become the problem of suffering. It's just the case. The problem of what was the problem of evil that God permits evil to exist is now the problem of God permitting suffering to exist. God's goodness is called into question every time you or me or anyone else has a moment's discomfort. For many people, good equals pleasure and pain equals badness. But what about the good pain can produce? Should we never dare to commit surgery? Should we never dare to break a bone back into place? Should we never dare to relocate a dislocated shoulder? Pain produces good. Even more so spiritually, pain can benefit us. C.S. Lewis writes, God whispers to us in our prosperity. He shouts to us in our pain. Like in Jonah's case, pain often helps us look to God. Sometimes to see him clearly for the first time. Let me give you an example from my own life. I thank God for all the painful breakups I've ever had. And I did it to a lot of people before I met Tyr. And I thank God not just that I met my wife, 
and I didn't date and marry all those different people. I thank God because it showed me about what it means to love and to be loved. If I didn't have that pain, I would never awaken to the reality that the affections that I have in my own heart are person-crushing, but God-adoring. I would never have awakened to the fact that the load that I have, that my, it's not my affections are too big, it's not that my affections are bad, it's that my, affections, my affections are misplaced. They're misplaced and they're put on people instead of on God. And that helps me to bring Jesus Christ into my relationship. Not perfectly, but in a way that when I feel I'm crushing or smothering my wife, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your family members, your friends, turn to Jesus Christ in that pain. God is big enough to hold you, and he's big enough to hold your love. And that's part of the point of pain. And so verse 10 concludes this episode in Jonah. We've been a lot of places, and this is what verse 10 says. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. I want you to get this, that Jonah is transported to where he started, but he's not the same as when he started. He's transported to the place where he started, but he's not the same person in that place. Jonah knew what it was like to flee down to the depths, all the way down to death itself. But Jonah knew what it was like to be chased by God, all the way down to the depths, and even to the gates of death itself. And I hope you realize that you and I are Jonah in a lot of ways. And we have the deliverance of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That as far as we can run, Jesus has run farther. As far as deep as we can dive, deeply, as deep as we can plunge into sin, God is already there in his grace and his mercy. Jesus has stormed Sheol, death itself, for three days and three nights, breaking the teeth the gates of death. He's done it. And Jesus' resurrection has rendered that gate useless for those who believe in him. We're no longer stuck by death. And this grace changes the way we respond to hurting people because we start holding out God's rescue instead of good advice. Don't be more brave. Don't say to someone, be more brave, be more generous, be more honest and things Tell someone, if they cry to the Lord, he will answer them. Tell someone that they can't go deeper than the love of Christ. Tell someone that death itself has been raped and plundered and pillaged by Jesus Christ. Jonah understands this. You will see this in chapter 3 next week. He responds to the same call in a different way. He responds with obedience. And here's why. Because he now identifies with the sinners in Nineveh. Because he realizes that he equally has run away from God. Maybe it doesn't look like skinning people alive. But it's still the same idea. And then further, Jonah goes to Nineveh because he's proven to himself and to us that no one deserves grace. No one deserves grace. And so therefore we can offer it to anyone. No one deserves grace so we can offer it to anyone doesn't matter who they are or what they do. Look, I know I've gone long. Okay, I get that. It's long, it's hot, I don't have a podium. Things are tough. Okay, but let me just end with an illustration. I think it'll tie it together for us. And I think you'll start to get what I'm talking about. 
I want us to see how grace changes us. Okay. It's a true story. <clears throat> so there's a story of a um, of a man, a pastor in this case, who has a son, and his son wants nothing to do with his father and has nothing to do with his religion and his Jesus. And it's a common story, probably. Pastors' kids, I feel like I'm worried about my own children, but they turn out um, usually one of the other ways. It's hard. <clears throat> Um, it's hard being around a bunch of hypocrites who, who need Jesus. Okay? And here's the deal. So the, the son, though, reacts poorly to this difficulty, and he decides to get into drugs and to get into trouble. And this, the father, in his patience and his long-suffering, sends him to rehab, grounds him, disciplines him, does what he can, but he finally realizes this son is beyond hope. And he goes and lets the son go and live with his friends. In some, some shack in the middle of a bad part of town. And of course, the father's worried and he's not sleeping well. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, he gets a phone call. He gets a phone call. And it's his son. And his son said, Dad, I'm in jail. Can you bail me out? I've got a DUI. And then he hangs up. And the father rolls over. Puts his, puts his slippers on, stripes over a robe pretty angrily, gets in his car, grabs his keys, and drives to the nearest courthouse. And he goes to the courthouse and goes to the jail with the holding cell and says, where's my son? Where's my son? You arrested him for DUI. He's my son. Where is he? And the bailiff says, the person who's in charge says, I don't know where your son is. I don't know who you're talking about. We don't have him here. And so the father drives to the next place, to the next courthouse, to the next jail, same thing. And to the next place, same thing. He drives all over the county trying to find his son, and he can't. And now he's not just frustrated. He's not just tired. He's fearful. And he drives to his, his son's shack, the first time he's ever visited in that bad part of town. And it's now right before dawn. It's been that long of a night. And he drives, and he pulls up to the shack, and he sees a light on, and he sees the doors unlocked, and he walks in. And there's his son. There's his son asleep on the couch in the living room. And there's a ton of conflicting emotions that run through this guy. But you know what he does? He goes up to his son, he leans over him, and he kisses him on the forehead. And he walks out. Several days later, the son, his son, calls him up and says, Dad, I want to meet. And they meet at some diner for breakfast. And there at that diner at breakfast, the son says, Dad, I want to change. I'm tired of drugs. I'm tired of the way I'm living. I'm t- I want to move back in. I'm in. I'll even go to church. I'm tired of this. I need something. I'm sh- I need to change. And the father has heard this speech before. And goes, really? Come on. Really? I've heard this. I don't, I don't believe you. And you know what the son says? The son says, Dad, it's different this time. And his dad says, Why? And he says, because that night when I called you about the DUI, it was a prank phone call. I called you and I hung up and we laughed the whole night as you drove around the county. We laughed about it so hard. We thought this was the funniest thing and what a sucker and a dupe and a pushover you were. That you would care that much and run around the town and believe me and think I was that bad of a kid. But you know what? I was awake when I heard your car pull up. And I heard you come to the door, 
And I went, I laid down and pretended like I was asleep. And then I thought for sure as you came in that I was going to get yelled at. I was going to get a lecture. I was going to get a shove or a punch. And you know what you did? You kissed me on the forehead. And that made all the difference in the world. And that kiss made me want to change. Listen, here's the deal. Have you been kissed on the forehead by Jesus Christ? Has that happened? Have you felt the tender concern of a father for his children? Have you expected to be shoved in that moment that you don't want to talk about with anyone? Have you expected to be yelled at and lectured? Have you made a speech of of repair to come to him and say, look, I don't deserve to be your son. I'm sure you have, and I'm sure I have. And if you haven't, know this. That changes people. To know that you're kissed instead of beat, to know that you're kissed instead of lectured, that's the Father. That's what Christ does for us. And you know what that does? That makes us want to go to places like Nineveh, wherever that is on this campus, and tell them about being kissed too. Would you pray with me? Father, um, I thank you for this time and for the wonderful message of your grace and your mercy that um, I find in my own heart that (laughs) I just feel a lot like Jonah. And I I pray, Lord, that as we feel like Jonah, we'd also know your love and that we'd be able to pray these prayers of Jonah with gratitude and with honesty. I pray, Father, that we would know what it's like to feel the kiss of the Father. We would know what it's like to know that the Son suffered on our behalf. I pray, Father, that everyone in this room would, would wrestle with what it looks like to ask for rescue and then to rest in that rescue. Help us to surrender. In your son's name, amen.